Good evening, good evening. Uh, my name, as has been said a few times, is Nick. Uh, I, um, I'm super, super excited to be here with you. It's been a while since I've, um, I've spoken here. Um, and tonight we're going to be carrying on with our series called Move. And the topic that we're going to be looking at tonight is on loving the poor. Um, now I'm going to be really honest with you as we start here. In many ways I feel a little bit kind of hypocritical and not really kind of like the expert sort of here in terms of doing this thing. Uh, because in many ways I fully understand the fact that I am a walking definition of straight white male privilege in a whole lot of ways. Like I am the guy who is a chino wearing, deck shoe owning, times reading, coffee bean grinding, um, tertiary educated now for the third time, um, like posh boy. In many ways that that's just the part of who I am. Like, I am the guy who wakes up to Radio 3 in the morning because there's nothing quite like a Brahms piano concerto to get you out of the bed feeling kind of well with the world sort of thing. So when it comes to thinking about this topic, I actually recognise that in many ways I've got a lot to learn as well because I haven't faced a great deal of um, disadvantage. I haven't faced a great deal of uh, discrimination or difficulty over the course of my life. Um, why, and in, in so many ways, that challenges me. Because what I see inside the pages of scripture is a God who creates man and woman in his own image. That's Genesis 1, the first page of this book. In the image of God, he created them. And so what that means is that every person, no matter their socioeconomic background, no matter their immigration status, their housing status, ethnicity, a level of physical ability or disability, mental health or otherwise, is worthy of my love, worthy of my respect, worthy of dignity and mercy and help. Not on the basis of what they can offer to me. And that challenges me. But it tells me that out there is, there's maybe a God who loves those people. Let me um, tell you a story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and, um, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when, you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. Now, that's quite a famous story, if you've, even if you've never been in church, or uh, you might have heard it. It's called The Parable of the Good Samaritan. Um, and it's found inside Luke 10, if you want to go and have a look at it um, later yourself. And what it is, is it's a story that Jesus tells. Um, and it's a parable. And parables are stories that have a meaning and a lesson behind them. 
this story comes in the context um, of, a, uh, of a lawyer um, coming up to Jesus. Now, when you hear lawyer inside of the Gospels, inside of the accounts of Jesus' life, um, don't think kind of legal lawyer sort of thing. Think kind of Bible scholar. Think kind of really knows their Bible really, really well. Like kind of goes away, goes studies this, like lives for the Old Testament, lives for Hebrew, all that sort of jazz sort of thing. I mean, you could call him Nick, you could call him Tim. Um, and we can go on with that. And so what he does is he comes up and he tries to test Jesus. He's like, right, I know a few things about, about, uh, about what it means to follow God. Let's see what this guy knows. And so he says this, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Basically saying, you know what, what do I do to follow God? Like, what do I do to be saved? Uh, we could say, what actually is it to be a Christian? That's basically what he's asking. Jesus turns around and says, well, what's written inside the law? What's written inside the Bible? Um, how do you read it? Basically, what do you think? Like, the classic way of answering someone's question, give them a question back. What do you think? Um, and, the, and the lawyer answers, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Basically, what the, what the lawyer does is he turns around um, and says, well, I kind of think it's summarized into two quite simple things. Love God, love people. Um, and, and Jesus turns around and says, yeah, bang on, good work. You've nailed this, well done. You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live, i.e. you're a Christian, well done. Very simply, love God and love people. But, like all nerdy, annoying people, um, desiring to justify himself, um, the lawyer said to Jesus, well, actually, who is my neighbor then? Because what he's, what he's kind of probably thinking is like, well, we can't be talking about literally everyone here. Like, I know that we're probably thinking a little bit beyond like the person who's physically next door to me, um, but we can't really be thinking of like kind of literally everyone. We're kind of thinking of people who are like me, basically. Like probably uh, the Jewish people, like kind of um, the people who are fairly well off, like who I get on with. Like if they're like me, yeah, we'll go, we'll go with that. That's basically what he's getting at. And so Jesus then tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And to help you understand kind of quite why Jesus tells the story, let's kind of map it into our context. Um, so imagine that you are, you're up in London. You're going to meet some friends at a bar for, um, for kind of uh, just some drinks and have a good time. Um, and you're, as you're going there, you don't really know the way, so you've got your phone out, you look at Google Maps, and Google's taking you down these kind of slightly sketchy back alleys. It's quite dark. Um, it's, it's, not, like, it's, it's a bit risky, but you want to get there. You're running a bit late, so you're, so you're hurrying along. Um, and suddenly, coming along behind you, you hear the sound of a moped, and suddenly there's an impact into you, and you're pushed over. And then these, these two men get off, start giving you an utter kicking kicking your stomach, kicking your ribs, kicking you in your face. They raid through your bag and pick out your purse or your wallet. They, your phone, which has, been, which has kind of fallen out of your hands, they go, they nick that, and then they get back on the moped and they run off. And you're left there, hurting, ashamed, alone. You can feel that your ribs have quite possibly been cracked in that moment. You start to try and rise, but the effort of it causes such agony that you start coughing and you're coughing up blood. You are, in many ways, like the man inside of Jesus' story, half dead. 
Somehow you manage to painstakingly by using the walls and, and kind of half crawling, half stumbling, half, half kind of just pu- pulling yourself along, get to the end of the, end of the road onto a junction uh, where there's a little bit more thoroughfare, hoping against hope that someone, anyone would come along and help you out because you, you have no way of getting help in that moment. And after a couple of minutes, you start to see someone walking along the way towards you and you kind of start kind of gurgling and and mumbling out something, anything to try and get their attention. And as they get a little bit closer, you see that around their neck, um, they're they're wearing a dog collar. And so you can see that this person is clearly a a religious leader, that they're they're a vicar, that they they lead a church. And so inside of you, there's a spark of hope that begins to happen because you think, well, actually, maybe they'll be able to help out. Like, Jesus, he was quite a nice guy. Like, he helped out people who are in need. Like, I'm clearly in need. Help me, please, someone, anyone, come here along. But then kind of they seem to like half glance at you, but then they notice a gap in the traffic. They hop across the roads and they start walking along the other side. And you're thinking, what? You're meant to get this. You're meant to be loving. You're meant to be caring. You're meant to be looking out for me. What are you doing? That's just like the priest inside Jesus' story, a religious leader. Next comes along someone who you kind of recognize, uh, who, who you know to be a Christian. Coming along, maybe you've seen them at church, but you don't really know them in person. Um, maybe they're one of the guys who, or girls who's up on stage a bit, and they're, co- and they're coming towards you. And like, um, here we go, someone, someone else who, who, who knows this Jesus person is apparently like a nice, good person sort of thing, walking, walking, walking towards you. So, you know, maybe this time, maybe this time someone will help me out. But they, like so many of us, when we see someone sitting on the side of the road, they just put their headphones in a little bit firmer, keep their eyes straight down onto the ground and just walk on by, maybe muttering, oh, sorry, mate, no change. And again, you're left with this feeling of despair and hopelessness because the people who were meant to get this, who are meant to be loving you, have just walked on by. And finally, after, after 10 more minutes... You see a third person walking up the road. And this time you can, you can tell that it's someone who's a little bit different. And, and you see that actually as they draw a little bit closer, it's a woman. And that she's wearing a burqa. And so you, kind of, you can see that she's clearly a practicing Muslim in that regard. And flicking through your head must be a level of, well, I don't know why they'd come and help me. Like, I know that it's, it's, it's risky for them. Like, imagine it was me there. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm a white kind of, I'm a, a white, big, like, guy there. For her to come and talk to me would be to put herself at risk. For her, uh, for her inside of her culture, her context, to speak to another man would, would be utterly a, sh- a shameful thing for her to do. Why would she help me out? But then as she gets closer and closer to you, you see her, notice you, her eyes light up a little bit, come speeding up towards you, rushing towards you, bending down, her eyes filled with compassion and saying, what on earth has happened to you? Can I help you, please? What's going on? You manage to blur out a little bit of what's gone on, that your ribs are, that your ribs are high, you can barely breathe. She immediately goes, you know what, let me help you sort of thing. She calls down the next taxi that goes by, helps you get into it, takes you to the hostel, pays the taxi fare herself. She then waits with you while you're seen at a and calls your friends and says that that you're right that what's going on 
And then because hostel want to do some checks on you, the following morning you're not in any sort of fit state to try and get home on your own. She says, you know what, actually there's a hotel next door. Go there, room service is on me. I'll settle the bill, don't worry. You need the help and I'll come back in the morning. Jesus asks into that context, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man or you who fell? The lawyer turns around and says, well, the one who showed mercy. Jesus' answer, go and do likewise. You see, the reason why kind of I wanted to map that story into into, into kind of our context is that we understand the power of what Jesus is saying. Is that actually that when we think about this concept of love God, love our neighbor, that it's more than just kind of saying that it's about loving those who are like us. You see, for in, in our context, uh, the, the vicar and the, and the kind of the person on stage inside of church, that's the, that's the priest and the Levite, two religious people sort of thing, like you, like the person who's fallen by the wayside. And the, and the Samaritan is just like that Muslim woman, completely not like you at all. In many ways, it's risky. It wouldn't be seen as, a, as an appropriate thing for that person to come and show mercy and show love. But what Jesus is saying is to love your neighbor is to say it doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter what is going on in their lives. It doesn't matter if they stink. It doesn't matter if it's difficult and it's costly and it's draining. No, 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 no. If they are in need, if they are in need of help, you go to them and you love them. And that completely flips this concept of what does it mean to love the poor in its head. Because Jesus says, it doesn't matter. Love your neighbor. And that, I think, for me, is the biggest thing that I've learned over the last couple of years when it comes to thinking about this concept of what does it mean to to follow a God who has a heart for the poor and a heart for justice. It's to say that Jesus loves without consideration of cost, without consideration of merit. And he says, go and do likewise. That actually, when it boils it down to it, if you call yourself a Christian inside this room tonight, that there is a biblical mandate which we can't walk away from. And that's that God has a heart towards the poor and he calls those who follows him to go and do the same. There's no polite way around it. If you love God and you claim to follow him, loving the poor just has to go hand in hand inside of it. And if, if you're not a Christian here, maybe this is your first time in church, I love to say we would love to talk with you about what it means to understand and know this God who's inside the pages of Scripture, who has this heart towards people, where he's prepared to love without consideration of whether you can give something back or not. That he loves you because you are loved, and that is it. That he's created you and formed you into the person that you are, and he knows every part of you, and he loves you. We would love to explore that with you and help you understand that you too can have a relationship with him. But when we start to think about this concept of loving the poor, what do do we mean about that in a biblical perspective? Well, the first thing inside of it is that um, loving the poor, the poor in a biblical perspective means more than just the financially poor. It means more than just those who don't have the economic means. Um, it absolutely does mean that. Don't get me wrong. That The people who are homeless, people who don't have, um, have enough food and so have to access food banks, people who um, 
who yeah, face, have crippling debts. We are, we are called by God to go and love those people. But inside a biblical perspective, it's also talking about those who are emotionally poor, maybe those who suffer from mental health issues, those who have personality disorders or social disorders like autism or ADHD, people where society would so often shun them and say, you don't fit into our nice, neat boxes and confines. So actually, you know, we'll just kind of, just kind of ignore you a little bit. It's talking about those who are um, relationally poor. It's talking about, um, about um, single-parent families, mums or dads who, who go through the hardship of raising kids on their own. It's talking about kids inside of foster care. Like, I don't know whether you know this, but, the, but the, uh, by kind of the statistics around the, the life chance of kids in foster care is utterly shocking because of the discrimination and, and disadvantages that they face. It's talking about kids who grow up with absent, with absent fathers inside their lives. It's talking about the lonely. In particular, we could think about the elderly in our day and age. Anyone who is in any way relationally hurting, they're the people that God says, go and love them. It's talking about those who are aspirationally poor, those who've ultimately just lost hope that things could be different for them, going to them and speaking hope into their lives. And ultimately, I guess, more broadly, it's talking about those who are spiritually poor. Those who don't know the love of a father up there who loves them and wants to have a relationship with them. And Jesus' command, go and do likewise. Love your neighbor. Because what we see when we open up the pages of this book is that we see that there is a God who seems to have a particular heart towards those who are on the outskirts of society. So much so that um, nerdy theologians, um, a bit like me, have termed this thing called the quartet of the vulnerable. And it's, and it's these, these people, the, the widow, the orphan, the foreigner, and the poor, who t- uh, come up so many times inside the Bible that they're just like, look, these people are vulnerable. When we talk about the poor, we're talking about those who are so often pushed away into the side a society where society basically isn't mm, not our problem let's just kind of pretend they don't exist and God says no 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 those are the people I particularly want to know a quick uh quick tour of this uh you can start off Genesis 1 page 1 man and woman made in God's own image that means no matter who they are God loves them and they have something inside them that reflects him And so they're worthy of dignity, they're worthy of respect, they're worthy of love. It carries on into things like um, the law. Um, God sets Israel up as a society that will be different to the world around them because of the way which they look out for the poor and disadvantaged in their midst. You get things like um, Exodus 22, um, verses 22 and 23. You shall not mistreat any widow or father's child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. God's saying these people are so often shunned and looked out in your society no 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 no. if they cry out to me I'm going to hear them and I will do something about it you get things like the law um, the laws of gleaning inside Leviticus 19 what that's about is that farmers were told as they brought in the crops to leave bits that fell at the side um, of the field there so that people who didn't have enough to eat could go and pick it up look out for those who don't have enough to eat God is saying you get things like the law of leveret marriage. It's a bit of a weird law. It's found inside Deuteronomy 25. But what that's about is, um, is God looking out for widows who in the context of ancient Israel had no status, had no rights at all. 
And the law of levirate marriage is saying that if a, if a woman's husband dies, it is the brother-in-law's responsibility to marry her. And that gives her status, that gives her protection, that gives her rights that she's not left without anything to, to be financially secure or have a home or anything like that. It's protecting her. It sounds weird to us, but in the context, it's completely radical. Because it's saying these people are shunned and, and, and disadvantaged. They're the people we proactively go and help. Yeah. You see this most um, explored in uh, the book of Ruth. Um, Ruth is a Moabite. She's a foreigner in Israel. Literally, the Moabites were hated by Israel. And what, God, what, what happens is that she comes as a widow. So not only is she a foreigner, she's also a widow. She literally has zero status in that culture, and she's a woman to throw in the mix in a very patriarchal society. What happens? A guy called Boaz uses both the law of gleaning and the law of leveret marriage in order to make sure that she is protected, that she is not mistreated, that she's honored, and that she's brought into the family. And ultimately, we know the end of the story from Matthew 1 is that Jesus comes from that line. Yeah. An immigrant widow. Yeah. Poor, vulnerable, and oppressed. And the Lord Jesus comes from that line. Um, the prophets inside the Old Testament. Uh, one of the most frequent charges that, that God levies against, um, against Israel uh, through the prophets is the fact that they are guilty of religious hypocrisy. That, they, um, that they're so kind of um, caught up in their pomp and their ceremony and all their religious practices that, they, that they've forgotten what it really means to follow after him. You get things like uh, Micah 6, seek justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. You get uh, Ezekiel, uh, Jeremiah 22, the whole book of Amos. All these things are, are pictures of God attack, basically like challenging Israel, virtually attacking them to say, you have forgotten something important here. Perhaps the most damning of these is Isaiah 1, where, um, where God says this, What makes you think I want all your sacrifices, says the Lord? I am sick of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened cattle. I get no pleasure from the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to worship me, who asks you to parade through my courts with all your ceremony? Stop bringing me your meaningless gifts. The incense of your offerings disgusts me. As for your celebrations of the new moon and the Sabbath and your special days for fasting, they are all sinful and false. I want no more of your pious meetings. I hate your new moon celebrations and your annual festivals. They are a burden to me. I cannot stand them. When you lift up your hands in prayer, I will not look. Though you offer many prayers, I will not listen. For your hands are covered with the blood of innocent victims. Wash yourselves and be clean. Get your sins out of my sight. Give up your evil ways. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Help the oppressed. Defend the cause of orphans. Fight for the rights of widows. I wonder what's in your mind when you hear that because in many ways I wonder whether the same charge could be levied at us at times yeah. we've got great meetings our bands sound great we sing really well we sing loudly we give money sometimes to the offering 
Do we look out for the vulnerable in our society? Do we love in the way that God loves us? Do we recognize there's a God who so loved the world that he would give his only son? And in turn, he'd say, go. Love your neighbor. Carries on inside of... um, the New Testament, you get things like um, uh, in the book of James, uh, James 2. James says this, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it's not backed up with works, is dead. Early in the book, he says religion that is pure and undefiled is this. Visit orphans and widows in their affliction to keep oneself unstained from the world. The Apostle Paul, when, he, uh, when he's taken uh, to Jerusalem uh, to stand before uh, the, the leaders of the church at the time, and they talk to him about preaching the gospel, um, they turn around and say to him, only don't forget the poor. And Paul says, that was the very thing I was eager to do. What Paul understands, what, what the, the Isaiah and James are challenging us about is that there, there's a hand-in-hand holding when it comes to understanding the gospel. And that's because God loves us, we go and love other people. And that God's heart particularly is towards those who are caught up in oppression, those who are vulnerable inside of our society, those who are in need of the poor. And he would say, go to them. And this is more than just kind of a... Um, just kind of a lip service thing that this is about a change inside of our hearts, a change of attitudes, a change of our own hearts that our daily lives are being prepared to look out for those who are vulnerable in our, in our midst. Our model ultimately is it always is Jesus himself. Think about the people who Jesus hangs out with. He hangs out with, uh, with, uh, with foreigners, the Samaritan woman. He hangs out um, with lepers who were literally outcasts in society, like people would run away from them. But Jesus goes to them. He hangs out with prostitutes. Just think about that. Prostitutes. People who are known to be full of sin and yet Jesus proactively goes and hangs out with them. Who are the people that he criticizes the most? The comfortable religious middle classes. For hiding behind their piety and their religiousness. And forgetting those who are really in need around them. Now, I, I want to I, I be clear here. I'm not trying to have a go here. I'm really not. Because, because this challenges me deep down as well. Because what I see inside the Bible is I see this God who has a heart towards the poor. I see a Jesus who goes proactively towards those who are in need, who are hurting, and shows them love and shows them compassion all the way through his life. And so because of that, I don't want you to walk away feeling like this is something like, oh, look at me, I'm so terrible. I, like, ah, actually, no, 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 no. This, for me, fills me with hope. Because if there's a God up there who has this particular heart towards those who are in need inside of our society, it means that he is going to be with us as we go to them. It fills me with hope because I know the story of Christianity up to this point. That Christians have always been at the forefront of social transformation. You see this in the earliest days of the church, Acts 6. Um, the first organization that the church sets up is a, is a ministry to make sure that the widows in their midst are, are not overlooked. Vulnerable people making sure they're not overlooked. The first leaders, sub-leaders inside the church, are told to go and look after the poor. You get um, things like the... Um, 
uh, the early church in the Roman Empire was at the forefront of, of uh, creating orphanages because what would happen in that time would be unwanted babies were literally left out to die if they, were, if they weren't wanted. And the Christians stood up and said, no, 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 no. That is not on at all. We need to do something about this. And so they, they, they disadvantaged themselves by creating these orphanages in order to show a different story to the world around them. And what happens is that the entire culture changes so that actually it's not acceptable for that to happen to defenseless, innocent children. Um, through the Middle Ages, you get the church being at the forefront of, um, of things like building schools and hospitals because, uh, so in order to give people the help that they need. You, um, it carries on to things like the, the foundation of the Salvation Army after the Great Awakenings, hand in hand with massive revivals where people come into, into faith inside Jesus, are these people who turn around and say, now we go and show this love to people, vast soup kitchens, all forms of social outreach to those who are most vulnerable. Heck, even Guinness was started by a Christian because he recognized that people at the time were just drinking gin because water wasn't safe. And so he made a drink that was full of iron and nutrients that they wouldn't, that they wouldn't be suffering in the same way. Throughout all of history, Christians have been at the forefront of this. Even today, the church is the biggest contributor of volunteer hours inside of the UK. Runs the most food banks. Runs, runs a vast proportion of mums and toddlers groups. Things, debt advice centres. The CAP course, Christians Against Poverty. All these things which is saying there is need in our midst. We need to do something about this. Our communities are in need of help. Our neighbours are in need of help, so we will go and do it. My favourite, favourite story of... Um, of social transformation inside of church history um, is one from its earliest days. Um, there are some um, academic uh, historians now who look back and, um, and kind of semi-criticize um, the church for being basically a religion of the poor at, when it started. Because Christianity so went to those who are in need of hope, in need of help, so many people became Christians that the Emperor Constantine, they rec some people wonder, became a Christian kind of almost because he felt like he had to. And the entire Roman Empire, the entire known world was transformed because of these people who were prepared to love their neighbour and love their God. Oh, to see the day when that would happen again. When our government would stand up and say, you know what, there are vulnerable in our midst and we are not doing right by them. We need to put Jesus as Lord and say that ultimately the local church is the hope of the world. Ultimately, I am hopeful, not because of the past, but I'm hopeful because of the future. I am hopeful because I know the end of the story. I know that there will come a day where every tribe and every nation will stand around the throne of Christ and sing salvation and honour belongs to our God and unto the Lamb who was slain. Who will sing worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And that will include people from every socioeconomic background, I am convinced. Because Revelation 21 paints a picture of the new heavens and the new earth. And what it says is that every ounce of disadvantage Every ounce, of, every ounce of discrimination, every ounce of boundaries and, and, and labels that would keep people down will be cast out into a lake of self with Satan's sin and all of its cronies. I know that at the end of the story is a world in which men and women stand together because they are loved by the king. And because of that, I believe and I dream of the day when the, when the world will look at the church now and say, how is this that you have got people from every background standing together? I'm encouraged in the midst of challenge because of that.
And so the question, I guess, becomes, what about us? What do we think? Do we love our neighbours? Do we really know our community, I guess? Because the reality is the poor are all around us. Um, could we grab on this, the slide up about, um, about Bexley? Um, so uh, this borough that uh, many of us live in, uh, there are 244,000 people inside of it. Um, 16% of those were born abroad, um, the top three being from Nigeria, India, and Ireland. That means people where this is not their own nation, and they will face discrimination and difficulty because of that. Uh, 21%, this is a couple of years old, so I actually think it will be higher than this, um, of Bex's residents come from a black, Asian, or minority ethnicity background. Um, 25% of children inside of the bar of Bexley live in poverty. Quarter, and what that means is they, uh, their families have under £248 a week um, to live on after housing costs. Um, 16% of Bexley residents live in poverty. 1% of houses built are affordable for people. 10,203 people over the age of 75 live alone. The poor are all around us. Do we know them? Are we prepared to hear Jesus' call of go and do likewise there? Are we as a meeting prepared to do our bit in taking this message of hope to the world that so desperately needs it? Look, as a church, we do do some amazing things. We run um, a food bank. We run a debt. We help facilitate a debt advice center. In fact, actually, virtually pretty much every week, there's a bin out, uh, out the back um, in, past those doors for the food bank. It would be amazing if at 6 o'clock church, we just filled that every single week with, with things that people who, who are in need can come and get get food. Literally, they don't have enough money for food, so they have to come and do it. I know that the food, bank is, food banks as a whole are in real need at the moment, so please consider that as a way in which we could just make a tiny start about this. We do things like uh, we've, the winter night shelter over... Um, over kind of the winter months, off the back of that community meal. We run Oasis, um, which is a mums and toddlers group, so anyone free in the community um, who needs it. We do do some amazing things, and all those things need people who are prepared to give up some time to help out. So if any of those ring inside of you, we'd love to chat with you about how you could get involved in helping out with them. And even as I'm speaking, if there are thoughts or ideas inside of your head about how we as a church could, um, could reach out to more people, I can guarantee you that, that the leaders here would love to have a chat with you about how we could facilitate those dreams that God's placed inside of you. But the question does become also, what about us as individuals? Because this isn't just about signing up to a project or about sticking our hand inside of our wallet when children in need comes up. This is about a heart attitude, about going to those who really need it. Wondering whether actually they do recognize that the church, that Christians, that Jesus can give them the hope and the change that they desire. Because if I'm really honest, I'm not sure whether most people do. Um, as some of you might know, I've been trained to be a social worker um, over the last kind of six, seven months. Um, and um, one of the most hard-hitting moments for me, sobering moments for me, was working with a family who, um, who live kind of within like a half-mile radius of this building. Um, and the thing that this family needs more than anything else is community, friendship, and hope. Yeah. 
knowing that they probably go past this building on a near daily basis, I'm not sure whether they'd look there and go, that's a place where I could find help and hope. That sobers me. Because it means that actually if the poor aren't necessarily going to come to us, we need to go there. We need to love our neighbor as ourselves. Because what I can guarantee you is that in getting hold of this and getting hold of God's heart for the poor, God's heart for justice, it will transform you. It will change you in so many amazing ways. I feel so privileged by the work that I do. It's the biggest joy to sit alongside people who are in need of help and hope and just offer that. I, I don't, I'm not there like saying, oh, let me tell about Jesus, but just be able to sit with people and, and, and listen to them, hear their stories is a, a remarkable privilege. And you'll learn so much about yourself. You'll learn so much about your preconceptions of people. Um, you'll learn about the warmth of people as well. People who are in need can be some of the warmest, most amazing, joyful people that I've ever met. You'll learn a lot about vulnerability. I, I'll never forget um, a mum who I, work, I was working with who disclosed um, her, her cannabis use to me in, in a conversation. Um, she, she just kind of, I just asked, oh, at the end of our conversation, was there anything else you'd like to talk about? And she just said, yeah, um, I smoke cannabis this much a week, like quite a lot of it. And then said, I want to stop. Can you help? And she said that knowing that I was seen there as a social worker, that in my job as a child protection social worker, that that does raise concerns. And so in many ways, she was, she, was, she was afraid of the fact that it might increase the seriousness of the case or that it could be a real risk to whether or not she kept her kids or not. In her mind, that was what was going on. But the privilege of seeing alongside her to say, this is going on in my life. Can you help me? Yeah. Is remarkable. And challenged me so much about, you know what, what am I like with being vulnerable? and authentic in my life. It made me think, like, you know what? As, as kind of fairly settled Christians, like, guys, we struggle to talk about the fact that, that we struggle with porn at times or that, or that there are body image issues going on. This is a woman who's literally terrified of losing her kids and says, I need help, please help me, sort of thing. Flipping egg. You'll learn so much about resilience, both in terms of the cost of it, because it is draining, don't get me wrong. You'll learn about, um, about things like the power and the grace of the Holy Spirit to keep you going when going gets tough, but you'll see it also inside of other people. Perhaps the biggest encouragement for me in this at the moment is my sister. Um, she, um, at the moment, she has to use a wheelchair because she, uh, she developed a neurological con condition back in about October time, which meant that she's paralyzed from the waist down. Um, and... Her resilience is just phenomenal. The way in which she's prepared to keep going on and say, somehow God will make this good. Like, I'm like, I would be kicking up 
so much because like, I, I'd be thinking I'm never going to be able to walk again. I'm maybe going to play football. Like, what is this sort of thing? And like on Good Friday, we went to a church meeting together. And like, she just talked with about three or four different people about how within about two days of, her, of all of this happening to her, like her going from like walking to not walking, she, she started, God was speaking to her about how now she can really empathize with people in that condition and how excited she is for being able to share with special, kids with special needs and, and, and disabilities and be able to empathize with their position. I'm like, what on earth? Like, how? Yeah. But it goes back to that. I guess she knows where hope is. But also the resilience of human beings inside of it. You'll learn so much about generosity as well. Because, like, it it does. In many ways, like, working with people and and loving people. Sorry, I'm both like a social worker there for a minute. Like, loving people who are in need does make you reflect and go, you know what, actually, God has done so much amazing stuff for me. I am so blessed. And for me, it drives me to be more generous with what I have. And, and to use, yes, that straight white male privilege to try and help other people out. Yeah. Ultimately, um, I think kind of in terms of what it means of loving the poor, you learn about sacrifice as well. Yeah. Because ultimately, this comes at a cost. Yeah. This comes at a cost to us financially sometimes. Like it might be that you're walking by a homeless person. You get chatting to them. And what they really need is a meal, a cup of coffee, or even just a bit of money to help them get into, an, into a shelter for that night. It can cost you financially. It costs you emotionally. Because people who, who are in need often have a lot of difficulties that they face. And walking, sitting alongside them can be really draining. Like, I'll be honest about that. But as I was saying, the privilege of sitting alongside them and the joy of seeing the, just the sparks of change is remarkable. Loving without expectation of return. Loving even when it hurts for the third or the fourth time. When, they, when it feels like there's a relapse or something has gone wrong or that they even don't want the help. That the idea we have of there being undeserving people of love is utter, utter nonsense from a biblical perspective. Like, we were not deserving of God's grace at all. Like, that is the fundamental of the gospel. And so for us to turn around and say that some people are undeserving of our love, mm, yeah, maybe not. And then ultimately, you learn of the love of God as well. Because the reality was, every single one of us was utterly, utterly spiritually poor. So, so far away from God that we don't even understand how far we were. We don't even understand the cost that it meant to Jesus to give up his life for us. But yet he did it freely and willingly because he loved us. Even though we weren't deserving of it. And so ultimately I guess it comes down to this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. I'll finish with this. Um, My favorite, favorite um, experience of working, uh, of training to be a social worker, um, has been working with a traveler family. Um, And I'll be really honest, when I went into kind of this situation, when I was given the case, I was pretty nervous because in my head I had a certain picture, a certain stereotype of travelers going on. Like I kind of basically had that, that gypsy stereotype in my head. And it was a little bit, 
discriminatory and it is a little bit racist in a lot of ways. I'll, like, I'll be honest about that. I was thinking kind of they're going to hate me because I'm an authority figure. I was kind of afraid that my car was going to get keyed. Like, uh, like I was thinking kind of they're going to be rude and kind of just ungrateful. Um, that um, basically kind of the idea of gypsies as people who just are antisocial and steal stuff all the time. All of that was going on in my head. And to my, I guess, shame, but also delight, I found that this family was just the warmest, most open family that I've ever like, come across, basically. like The joy that they have was remarkable, and the generosity they had, despite not having much, just how they were prepared to, to, to love me, I guess, in turn, shocked me, and was such a blessing. And hearing their stories, their culture, and what's going on, what life is like for them, was just a ridiculous privilege. But I think my favourite moment of it all was um, I was working with uh, with the kids that I um, that I uh, I've, I was working with, um, and we were just walking around um, the the site. Um, and this is like quintessential traveller site vibe going on. Um, like we're talking horse poo all, all over the place, like shaggy ponies, um, like the tr- the carts, static caravans, like all the stuff that if you had a picture of a site in your head, this is what was going on. And I'm there like in my chinos, um, like fully on kind of knowing that I am that straight white male privileged guy. Like I am the posh boy in the situation sort of thing. And and, and we're there, and we're just chatting away, and I think we're talking about Snapchat, and him Snapchatting a girl he likes, and all this, and kind of just having a laugh, basically, and kind of, as well as talking about some of the concerns that were cropping up. Uh, but anyway, um, we're just kind of, we're just having quite a good time together. And there was a moment where he just hopped up on one of the carts um, that, was, that was around, and paused mid-sentence, um, looked down at me, and said, Nick, I like you, mate, but I've just realized two things. One, you're going grey. And two, you are a bit posh, <laughs> but you dress well. And, and it was just this wonderful moment because we were able to have a conversation then, a, a, a kind of quite laughing conversation about just how weird this whole thing was. Like the fact that me, as yes, that Gina-wearing like posh boy, is hanging around on a traveller site with his own words, a gypsy kid. And kind of how that just doesn't happen like at all ever like social work is kind of an enforced way in which that happens and inside of me there kind of sparked this moment of hope and a moment of of dream inside of it of I know the other place where that could happen yeah. and that's the church yeah. because there is that picture of one day every tribe every nation every person of every socio-economic background standing around the throne and singing, worthy is the lamb who was slain. I'm convinced that when it comes to thinking about what it means to love the poor, that actually we only consider it because God first loved us. We only, can, we only go and ask God, change our hearts in the way that your heart is broken for these people because we see the love of God on display for us first. And ultimately, I know that we go and do likewise, knowing that Jesus is with us, that he's in the midst of it, that he loves those people, and that he is already doing a work there, and that he wants to see this, this society transformed for his glory. Should we pray? Oh, Father, I, um, I thank you. Uh, I thank you for your love before anything else. Thank you that it's true. We were so poor ourselves. We were so in need of help. We were so in need of mercy. We don't even realize just how far away we were from you. 
but yet you loved us. You loved us despite the fact that we were totally undeserving of it, totally unworthy of it, that we couldn't give it back to you, that we couldn't earn it ourselves. Thank you, Jesus, that you're, you're the model of all of this. Loving people because they're, they're made in the image of God and so worthy of love and dignity and honor and respect and mercy. Not on the basis of what they can give back, but just on the basis that they're loved. And so I guess my, my prayer ultimately is, is for those of us who know you and love you, that you, you would change our hearts in when we think about this. That you would change it so that we, we recognize the cost of it, yes, but also the privilege and the joy that it can be to, to love in the way that you do. Help us to be a community, to be a, to be a church, to be a people who, who stand up against un, injustice in our society who stand up and, and are prepared to be counted and say, God loves you, so I love you. Help us only to be prepared to love our neighbours, even literally the people next door to us. Help us to go to them. And I pray for anyone who, who doesn't know you yet inside of this room. I pray um, that they would know the love of a father for them, they would know the love of a God up there who, who knows everything about them. All their hopes, all their dreams, but also all their shame. And the things that they don't like about themselves and says, I love you. I want to know you. I want to have a relationship with you. Would they know that love as well? Jesus told me, we say that we love you. We put you first. We say, help us do this. And thank you. Thank you that you say, go and do likewise. Amen.